Please open your Bibles to the book of Philippians, to the letter of Philippians. It's a great honor and joy to be able to expound the Scriptures Sunday after Sunday. Thank you for your patience and your love and your grace towards my life. It's a great joy. Philippians chapter 2. Please stand if you can. Let's go to chapter 1, starting verse 27, so we can get the flow of thought here. Chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For He has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw that I had, and now hear that I still have. Therefore, if there is any comfort in Christ, any consolation from love, any fellowship or communion from the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full accord with, of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in hum humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you Look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Please be seated. Lord, we beg your help. This is the, the work that no man can do. It's a supernatural work of saving, sanctifying. So help us. Help me to be a faithful slave. I pray that my heart and my mouth would have chains connected to your word. And I pray that the ears of the congregation would be changed to your word also, Lord. Thank you for this wonderful morning. Thank you that we can be together. We also pray for our brothers and sisters all over the U.S. You strengthen your church here in the U.S., we pray. Pray for your church all over the world, in China, Angola, Mozambique, Afghanistan, in Canada, Mexico, Argentina. Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come, that your people would be saved. We also pray for our governors, pray for our president. We pray that you would save him. Cause him to fear you. Pray for a governor here in Oregon. I pray that you'd save her. Change her heart. Give her a heart of love towards your kingdom. So help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
the sun is hitting right here. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm going to change it just a little bit. Better. <laughs> I don't know how many of you know, but this last week, this past week, we had the DNC, the Democratic National Convention. And it was interesting, it's not that I was planning on bringing the Democratic National Convention to the pulpit, but it was interesting because the theme that they had, does anyone know the theme of the DNC this year, last week? Unity! Unifying America! So I was thinking how that matches with our theme of unity. I was thinking about their unity, and if you listen to their speeches, it's fascinating. They, they are united, united in hate against the, the president that we have. They are united in hate against any sort of biblical ethics. They are united in hate towards any sort of biblical philosophy of works. And econo eco economics. They are united. A unity moving more and more to Marxism. And that's important for us to think through because many liberal theologians will say that communism, socialism is the first step to communism. But communism is actually biblical. And they unite people. And often they go to the book of Acts trying to show that. And it's important for us to think through and go and read the passage in Acts that they often quote. So Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 45. Listen or read because it's very important. Luke says, so those who receive His Word, remember the Lord must open your heart, we're going to see with Lydia, they receive, they're being saved. They receive His Word. What is next? They're baptized. And then after they were baptized, what happened? They're added to the church, church membership. Salvation, baptism, church membership. And they, Christians, baptized, belonging to a church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed, who is that all here? All who believed were together, united, and they had all things in common. You see the communism, common, sharing. That, that's the picture that they come to the, this passage to tell you. But they completely ignore the context. And look what they were doing. And they were selling their possessions and belongings. It's not that the government came and took over their possessions and said, No, 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 what's yours is mine now. No, they're saying what's mine is actually yours. They are selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the to proceeds to all who had needs. Or the next one, Acts chapter four, verse thirty-two. 
Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart. Unity. One heart, one soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. That was not the state, was not the, the government telling them, Hey, now what you have is no longer yours. Joseph, you have two cars, too bad. I'm taking your second car and giving to David. No, 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 no. They, because they are united in one heart, one soul, in the gospel. They were doing out of their own will. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. Very important. Because there are some Christians buying to this idea that, hey, if we move more and more to a Marxist ideology, communist ideology, there will be a better distribution of wealth. And Christians buy this idea because they don't understand the Scriptures. The early church's unity in Christ and faith in the gospel caused them to voluntarily sell or give their possessions in order to supply the needs of other Christians. It's easy to look at the Democratic National Convention and say, oh, that's them. How about us, Christians? Oftentimes we try to find grounds, a foundation for unity in things apart from the gospel, the work of Christ, the work of the Trinity. I was thinking about the famous Billy Graham, famous evangelist Billy Graham. And if you know his career, you think you, you, you get him in the beginning. And he was what was called a fundamentalist. What people would call him a narrow-minded. And the more he decides to be open-minded for the sake of evangelism, ecumenical evangelism, Suddenly, it doesn't, doesn't matter if you're Roman Catholic. It doesn't matter where you are theologically. What matters is, let's have evangelism. Big meetings, tents. Start including liberal preachers. Roman Catholic leaders in his crusades. Why? The unity was based on evangelism. Evangelism is our goal. Is evangelism a bad thing? By no means. It's a wonderful thing. But it can never be the grounds for unity. In the 90s, there was the so-called Toronto Blessing. Toronto Blessing. And I was part of a church in which many of the pastors went to Toronto for the revival that they were having there. And what was bringing what so-called the unity there was signs and wonders. So, as long as people were rolling on the floor, laughing uncontrollably, dr being drunk in the spirit, speaking in tongues, it, not, it did not matter whether the person was Presbyterian, Jew, Roman Catholic, Episcopalian, Universalist, Hindu, New Age... I know because I was part of a church like that. 
They have the title, The Breaking Dividing Walls Were Falling Apart. And the Breaking Dividing Walls was uniting people in so-called spiritual experiences. So as long as you're having the same spiritual experiences that we are having, we are united. How about us today? So many solid Christians finding their unity in good causes, in social causes. So, for example, abortion. You see Christians joining hands with Roman Catholics and Jews and praying. I don't know who they are praying to, but it's because of their fighting abortion. So as long as we are fighting abortion together, we are united here. Many social issues, feeding the poor, racism. All these things cannot and will not serve as the foundation of true biblical unity for the church. These are actually idolaters' attachments to a cause and not an attachment to the triune God. True unity, true unity is formed by the work of the triune God alone, revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ alone, and no other ground is sinking sand. And Paul here in Philippians chapter 2 is giving us the foundation or the grounds for true biblical unity in the church. Last Lord's Day, we saw the gravity of unity, how unity is important. Today, we're going to be looking at the grounds of unity, the foundation of true unity. So, please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And just a, a, a note. When Paul wrote this letter... If we had access to the original manuscript, there were no chapters and verses. And chapter and verses can be very helpful for us to find a passage. Have you noticed when the New Testament is quoting the Old Testament, they never say chapter and verse. Somewhere it's written, or the prophet Isaiah says, there was some more recent thing, the chapter and verse. And it's helpful, but sometimes it's actually harmful. Because, for example, we come to Philippians chapter 2, and my, my Bible has a division. It's as if Paul is starting a new subject here. But actually, Paul is not starting a new subject. He's just flowing the same thought. It's a continuation from chapter 1 in our Bibles, verse 27, until verse 16 of chapter 2. It's one main thought. And we know that because in verse 1, look in your Bibles, the ESV has so, so. The particle there I would translate as therefore. So works too, but it shows you that there is a connection of thought here. And what is the connection? The preceding sentences in verses 27 through 30. And when you go through verses 27, starting verse 27, we see that Paul is dealing with the subject of unity in the church. Unity. 
Hawthorne says, dominates the thinking of the apostle in this section. And we see that because he's dealing with unity outside, dealing with unity in the church, but the threat of destroying the unity from outside forces and from inside forces. It's very important. In verses 27 through 30, he's dealing with the threat from outside to harm the unity of the church. Remember the opponents, opposition from outside. And now he moves to the problem within the church, inside the church. So you can say external opposition, verses 27 through 30, and then internal opposition, trying to destroy the unity of the church. And you know, because persecution, affliction from outside, can indeed harm the unity of the church. How? As soon as persecution comes, suffering comes, it's so easy for us to look at our own interests. My family, my safety, my security. Ignoring, forsaking the other brothers and sisters. And that's what Paul deals in the, in the beginning there, verse 27 through 30. No, 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 no. The opposition, the persecution from outside, instead of tearing you apart, must unite you. And now he's going to move into dealing with the threat of disunity from within. So courage, courage towards hostile outsiders and compassion towards annoying fellow Christians is the theme here. And continue with the imagery of a battle. Paul, as the commanding officer, verses 27 to 30, is dealing with the army in the battlefield. They are, as Paul is dealing, okay, when you're there in the battlefield, the persecution is come, is coming. Remain united. And now it says Paul, the commanding general, is talking to them now in the military base. And they must be united in the military base in order to be united in the battlefield. The structure is just important to go through the, the preview here before you get to verse 1. The, the structure of the text is, is beautiful. Often our English translations cannot capture how skillfully Paul is writing here. Uh, he structures this unity in three strophes. It says, uh, it's just beautiful how Paul structures this sentence. Very clever, very powerful. Uh, the first strophe, Paul, as a talented and skillful writer, used words big in meaning, compacted into brief, verbless phrases. Rare words, and words never found anywhere else in the New Testament. He piles clause on top of clause, beginning each clause with the same word. He does all this as if searching for ways that his readers both think and feel deeply about the essential nature of harmony and its necessity within the Christian community. It's just beautiful how Paul 
is putting these sentences together as if just to, to capture their minds, capture their hearts about the importance of unity in the church. And the first trophy, that's verse 1. The first trophy there, verse 1 of Philippians chapter 2. Paul is dealing with the foundation or the grounds for biblical unity. I was thinking about what Paul is doing here. As a builder, he knows that he needs to lay the foundation. He's about to come and just build this massive project of calling the whole church to be united. But for this project to be accomplished, he knows that he needs a very strong foundation. Amen? And that's what he's giving. He's giving the foundation, the work of the Trinity in their lives. And the firm foundation is important. Because storms come. When you least expect, there's a storm coming. And might rip apart the roof. Get a window out of your house. Get a door out of your house. But as long as the foundation is solid, we can just repair that and keep dwelling there. Amen? So that's what Paul is doing. And we know that that happens. In God's providence, storms come and might rip a, a shingle out of the roof, a window. But as long as the foundation is solid, we can just repair that and maintain the unity in the church. So let's go to verse 1. Therefore, if there is any comfort in Christ, if any consolation from love, any communion in the Spirit, if any affection and compassion. The if here, I, I said last Sunday, but the if here is not an if of condition or ask, questioning. That's very important because often in English when you use the if, it says a condition, if it rains, I, I cannot come. But this if here is an if of certainty. It's an if of certainty. And we know that because Paul used this in other passages. So one example is in 2 Corinthians 5.17. And the structure in the Greek is very similar to Philippians 2.1. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. You can change the if or since. Because it's a fact. Since one is in Christ, therefore, he is a new creation. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's not doubting there that they have the comfort of being Christ. Paul is not doubting if they have the consolation from love. No, Paul is very certain. And one of the ways we can see in our own language is if you picture a, a battle and you see the soldiers all line up. And you think about the the man who is leading the troops, riding on his horse and talking to his troops. And he's asking them, if you have any desire to come back home to your wife and kids, if you have any burden in your chest to see your land free, if you have any desire to see your kids growing up in a good place, then go to the battlefield, if necessary, die for this cause. 
Of course, he knows that those soldiers want to go back to their wives, to their children. It's a nip of certainty, but you cause them to think. And that's what Paul is doing here. He knows that they have all these blessings. So look at verse 1. And that's crucial here. That's key. So if there is any comfort, where? In Christ. In Christ. That's Paul's favorite expression to say who a Christian is. If you ask, what is a Christian, Paul? What is his answer? One who is in Christ. No longer in Adam, but in Christ. I no longer live. Who lives now? Christ lives in me. So that's foundational. It's from the Christian's union with Christ that there is the enablement and the empowerment for us to be a united church. It's our union with Christ that provides all the Trinitarian blessings found in verse 1. And that's very, very important, my dear church family. There can be no unity if the members of the church are not in Christ. So you see, churches, where they don't care about examining the members, making sure that these people are actually Christians. There is no way to have unity, biblical unity in a church, if people are not in Christ. That's the first step. They need to be in Christ. And now Paul is going to lay these four blocks, this foundation for the call to unity. And look at the first one. So if there is any comfort in Christ, that's the first blessing, the, the first concrete, the first block that Paul is laying here. Comfort in Christ. Paraclesis. Paraclesis in Christo. It's, it's a hard word because... Parakaleo, paraklesis, it's such a, a, a broad word in Greek that it can mean uh, an exhortation, it can mean an appeal, it can mean that if you're exhorting somebody, at the same time it can mean that you're comforting somebody. So, depends the context. Context is key to translate this word. And I strongly believe that according to the context, the the, the, the better translation is comfort. I think the English Revised Version has comfort. And I think Paul is talking about the comfort in Christ, meaning the salvation that we have in Christ. And I believe that Paul is drawing from the Old Testament, especially Isaiah. So, for example, Isaiah 41, Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And the whole context is the end of the exile and the salvation that the Lord is bringing to His people. Isaiah 49.13 Also, the context of these passages are key. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted His people, and will have compassion on His afflicted. Context of salvation. Isaiah 51.12 51.12 I, I am He who comforts you. Context of salvation. Isaiah 52.9 Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted His people. Exile, captivity, 
It's a picture of the consequences of sin, desolation, distress, misery, barrenness. That's all the things that sin brings. And we see in Christ, in the Messiah coming and bringing the comfort that we so needed. That's why I believe Paul is drawing from the Old Testament, saying the comfort, the salvation that we have in Christ. According to John, John 14, verses 15 and 16, Jesus is the parakletos, parakletos. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And here also, it's another way of, since you love me, it's a certainty. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And look at the, the result. And now we will ask the Father, and He will give you what? Another, another parakletos. Why is it important, another? Because Jesus is the one. The Father is a comforter, the Son is a comforter, and the Spirit also. Meaning, Jesus is our parakletos, who comes with paraclesis, with comfort. Uh, we often think about comfort as something, well, when you think about the word comfort, what, do you think, what comes into your mind? I need some comforting foods, <laughs> right? Just sit down on my couch, relax, eat some ice cream. I need some comfort. We have this very light view of comfort. Actually, the word has nothing to do with, with that. And Wycliffe was translating the Bible and he chose comfort. It's because he was thinking about the Latin. Comfortare. Coming with force, coming with strength to help the weak. That's the, the meaning of comfort. Sin makes us weak. Sin makes us feeble. Sin makes us incapable of saving ourselves. Because of sin, we cannot walk to Christ on our own. And we need the comfort coming with the strength, with the power of Jesus Himself to unite us to Him and save us. Psalm 23, the good shepherd, his staff and his rod do what? They comfort me, rescues me, saves me. So that's what Paul is saying, the comfort, the salvation that we have in Christ. And then he moves on, he says that the, the consolation, the consolation from love. It's a very rare word, para mution. And was used for someone to come really close to you and speak to you as a friend. That's why I think the word consolation is a good translation here. The word is used to speak by coming close. You have the para, the prefix para, to come along and then to speak as a close friend. But it's fascinating because Paul here says that this consolation comes from whom? Consolation from love. 
Who is love? And it's very clear that Paul is dealing with the Trinity here, because he has Christ, love, and then the Spirit. And he takes us to his benediction in 2 Corinthians 13.14. Look at how similar it is. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And I believe that Paul is doing the same thing here, but he's using love as a synonym for God the Father. The consolation from God the Father, who is love. In 1 John, we read, 1 John 3, 1. See, behold, what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. That's the consolation. The God who is love came and brought consolation to us. He spoke words. Once you were children of hell, children of my wrath, and now you are my children. I'm your father. Sin brings sorrow upon sorrow, distress upon distress. Sin brings depression upon depression, disappointment upon disappointment, grief upon grief. But in God the Father, we have received the consolation of love that overcomes all the consequences of sin. The love of God the Father speaking, You are my Son. In Christ Jesus, You are my Son. I am your God. And when He speaks, He accomplishes. Those are powerful words. We sang how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. So we saw the comfort in Christ, the consolation from the love of the Father, and now Paul adds the third person of the Trinity. Here's the third block of foundation for church unity. Think about Paul building the call, the project, and now he puts the fourth major block here. If there is any communion in the Spirit, koinonia numatos. The word koinonia speaks of the close association, deep communion that the Spirit of Christ produces in the lives of the members of the church. You think about sin. Because of sin, we had no fellowship with God. Because of sin, our fellowship was actually with darkness. We had communion with darkness. Before the grace of God in saving us, we had a partnership with our flesh. We loved working to serve our own sinful desires. We loved the communion with darkness. Just look at your lives before Christ and after Christ. Before Christ gave you His Holy Spirit to place you in fellowship with Him. And your life now in fellowship with Him. A clear change of allegiance. Before our fellowship, our communion with the Holy Spirit, we had communion with darkness. I had a common union with people who loved darkness. That was my life. I had a partnership with the kingdom of darkness. I had a 
a common union with all those who belong to the kingdom of darkness. And when Christ, through His Spirit, changed me, placed me in a fellowship with the Trinity, with His body, everything changed. And now I have a communion with you. And we look at our lives, we are so different. We are so different. And yet, we have this common union in the Spirit. Look what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. That's a beautiful chapter. And he brings here the work of God and the Spirit. He says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Ephesians chapter 2. Following the prince of the power of the air. Do you see the communion, the partnership with the prince of the air? We were following after him. We had a partnership. We had a communion with darkness. The spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, that, those are our brothers and sisters, the sons of disobedience. That's the communion we had before Christ. Among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. He goes on to say, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and the strangers to the covenants of promises, having no hope and without God. But now, where? In Christ. In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to whom? To the Father. See the, the beauty of the Trinity here. And the fellowship now is the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God in Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. By whom? By the Spirit. That's what makes the church different from anything else. Any other organization. That's what makes the church different from any other organization. The church... Is formed by people whom the Holy Spirit has saved. No other institution is created by the work of the Spirit of God joining together those who belong to Christ. Not even the family. Not even the family. Christ said that actually He brought a sword into the family. There are many clubs and associations. Amen? There are many clubs and associations. You can have a, a Costco membership. You can have a gym membership. You can have a, a gun club. Yeah. You can have so many types of clubs and associations. 
But nothing, nothing comes close to the church. Think about the Holy Spirit here, the fellowship of the Spirit. The bound of divine personhood and love and communion that joins the Father and the Son. Who joins the Father and the Son? The Spirit. And He's the one who unites us into the Trinity, into the body of Christ. So we see the Trinity being displayed here. The same Spirit of God, the same Spirit of Jesus Christ, the same Spirit who anointed Jesus, empowered Jesus, united the Son and the Father, is the same Spirit that dwells in us. That's amazing. The Spirit that empowered Jesus Christ. Remember in His baptism, the Holy Spirit comes, you have that union of the Father, He's empowered for His mission, and that same Holy Spirit now is within Ruth, is within Rick, The members of the church have the same Spirit of Christ. The exalted Jesus gave to each one of His sheep His Holy Spirit to dwell in each one of them. Nobody is better than the other. All the sheep, they all have the same Spirit of Christ. So you see here the, the three blessings of the Trinity. The three blessings of the Trinity. But Paul now adds one more to the triad. It's like he has a triad plus one. And it's interesting how he works here because he says, If any affection and compassion. But you see, he doesn't give the source of this affection and compassion like he did with the comforting Christ. The consolation from God the Father who is love. The fellowship from the Spirit. He now he just unleashes affection and compassion. If you go back to verse 8, Philippians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says, For God is my witness, how I yearn, how I long for you all. With what? With the affection. Splankna, the affection of Christ Jesus. Remember that Greek word for something in your stomach? You know, when you're going through an emotional turmoil, the first place that affects you is your stomach. That's the, the word that we have here. This affection, this deep affection. So they have experienced the affection of Christ through Paul, through Silas through Luke, through Timothy, who came to that church. They experienced the compassion of Christ through those men when they came to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, Paul is reminding them of these divine certainties that they all already experience. It's not an if of, hey, have you ever experienced that? No, Paul knows that they have experienced all these things. Comfort in Christ, consolation from the Father, the fellowship of the Spirit. And now, affection and compassion. It's the gospel indicatives. So Paul has said all the things that they have experienced. And now, 
In verse 2, Paul drops his major request. He laid a foundation, solid foundation, the work of the treated in their lives, and now he, now he can build his petition, his request. And what is his, re- his request? Be united for God's sake! Look how he says, complete my joy. That's beautiful. Fulfill my joy now. And the, 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 the only request here is fulfill my joy. That's the imperative. All the other verbs, being of the same mind, being of one heart, that's just explaining how it's going to fulfill his joy. So once he has the, and that's how it is in the Christian life, you have the truth of God, the truth of the gospel, those are the indicatives. That's what God has done for you. Now therefore, there is the imperative. That's what you must do now. That's how you must live now. And that's what Paul is doing here. Paul had already declared his joy in chapter 1 verse 4 verse 18. He's rejoicing. But he says, there is, there is one more thing that I need from you. And it is to bring my cup full to the brim. That's what I want. Just cause to overflow a little bit. You know when you buy a milkshake... And they fill your cup, but there is still like some space there. And you know, you notice that there is some left over in the blender. I know you're laughing. <laughs> you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> and you say, hey, hey, just, yeah, just, that's exactly what Paul is saying here. You are my crown, my joy, I'm rejoicing, but here. It's not fully completed my joy. I need you guys to be united. That's what Paul is doing. We're going to look more at this verse next Lord's Day, but I think it's important for us to think and ask ourselves, does the unity of the church affect my joy in any way? Does the unity of the local church affect my joy in any way? Or am I able to live a joyful life, rejoicing my life, when you're having problems with unity in the church? So here's the genius of Paul. That's what Paul is doing here. In light of all the immeasurable, boundless joys that you have in Christ, please, give me just a tiny blessing. That's what Paul is doing with them. Can you picture Paul, the church in Philippi, for the first time, they're reading Paul's letter. Paul is asking them, "Do, do do you have the joy of being comforted in Christ? 
When you're desolated by your sin, Christ came rest, you brought His comfort. Do you have any comfort in Christ? What are they going to reply? Of course, Paul, we have. We have so much comfort in Christ. Paul asks them, Do you have any consolation from the love of God the Father? Are you kidding, Paul? How much consolation we have from the love of God the Father? How about the communion from the Holy Spirit? Do you have any communion from the Holy Spirit? Paul, you know very well. When the Holy Spirit came, He broke our communion with the world. And now we have this beautiful communion with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. Paul, another question. Do you have any affection or, or compassion or mercy? Have you experienced any Stop, Paul. You are the emblem of affection and compassion of Christ in our lives. You are willing to suffer. I almost lost your life to come and preach the gospel to us. And you can just imagine the church as they are thinking about these realities in Christ. Maybe their eyes are tearing up with tears thinking about these truths. People are shouting, Amen, Paul! Yes! And if these truths here do not affect you, if the comfort in Christ, the consolation from love, the fellowship in the Holy Spirit, the affection, the compassion that we have, if these things do not stir you, you're not going in a good way, brother or sister. You're heading to a wrong direction. Paul knows that this beautiful, glorious Gospel truths will affect their hearts, their minds. So Paul says, as they are shouting, Amen, yes we have. We have the comfort in Christ, Paul. We have the consolation from love. We have the communion of the Holy Spirit. And then Paul just drops. So do something with all these things. Give me just a little blessing. Complete my joy by being united. That's amazing that Paul does not appeal to their Roman citizenship. Paul could have appealed to their Roman citizenship. Brothers and sisters in Philippi, you all share the same Roman citizenship. You are little Romans. You all speak Latin. You all have the same privileges. Be united for God's sake. That's not what Paul does. Because he knows that true unity, true biblical unity will never flow from these things. The grounds and foundation of true Christian unity is not political, social causes, nationality, missions, evangelism, the well-being of society, the foundation and grounds for true biblical unity in the church is the work of the Trinity in the gospel of Christ. There can be no biblical unity apart from the gracious work and powerful work of salvation of the triune God in our lives. And that's what Paul is showing them. The foundation of our unity is our common comfort in Christ. Is the sharing that we have in the Father's consolation. 
is the fellowship that we all share here from the Holy Spirit. That's what unites us. Apart from that, there is no unity among us. Take away the comfort, the, the salvation that we have in Christ. Take away the consolation from the Father in adopting us, speaking words to our ears and say, You are my son now. Remove the fellowship, the communion of the Spirit. And I'm, I'm not kidding. We have nothing in common. There is no unity among us. Because we have been united in Christ, because we have been comforted by Christ, because we have received the consolation of the Father, because the Spirit changed our fellowship from the kingdom of darkness into a fellowship with the kingdom of Christ, because we have experienced affection and compassion, therefore, now it's our duty to show and manifest these blessings into the life of others in the church. After receiving so much love, so much comfort, so much consolation, so much grace, so much affection, so much mercy, so much compassion, how can we go on and live for ourselves? And notice the words that Paul uses here for the it's all relational words. Comfort. You cannot comfort a tree. You cannot comfort your car. It's relational words. Consolation. Communion. Affection. Compassion. Why? Because all these realities that they have received in Christ now must be manifested in the body of Christ. So we can... Just go back really quickly and just think what Paul is doing here and apply in our lives. Therefore, if there is any comfort in Christ, any comfort in Christ, any? Oh, how much comfort we have in Christ. When He came with force, with power, when we were weak, He came and saved us. He rescued us. Any comfort in Christ? Yes. A lot of comfort in Christ. Do you know what sin does? Weakens us. You have no control over muscles. You have no control over gossip. You have no control over sinful criticism. You have no control over slandering other people because your muscles are weak. You cannot control that. But when Christ comes with comfort, with force, with power and rescues us and changes us and strengthens us, now we not only have the power to not gossip, destroying the unity of the church, but actually to speak words that build each other up. Any comfort in Christ? Yes! Christ has come with power. He strengthened us. Therefore, let us strengthen the church. Let us comfort one another. Any consolation from love, the love of the Father. Has anybody here received consolation from God the Father? Any consolation? 
Yes! He came and He spoke to us as a loving Father, bringing us into unity. In light of the consolation and the soothing words of love from the Father, now we ought to soothe others. Instead of aggravating a situation that might disturb the unity of the church, like the Father, we use our words and actions to bring consolation and soften the storm and pain. Any fellowship, any fellowship from the Spirit. Transferring us from the kingdom of darkness, from a common union with darkness, placing us with a common union with the Trinity, and now we do what? We preserve this unity, this communion, this fellowship. How about affection and compassion? Have we experienced any affection and compassion? <laughs> any affection and compassion? So much, it's overwhelming. Now it's our duty to give back the affection and compassion that we have received. It's interesting that Paul used the same word, the same two words together in Colossians 3. That's the only other place where we find Paul using the same two words together. Colossians 3, verses 12 through 15. Look at what Paul says. But on then... Dress yourselves as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Look at the first two garments that we must wear. Affection and compassion. As the two words that Paul used in Philippians. Kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another... Forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all this, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the shalom, the peace of Christ, rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called into one body. Unity, unity, and the necessity of the fruit of the Spirit. And Paul is telling the church, you better every day of your life wear these garments. Put on, dress yourself, like every day before you leave your house, there are some garments that you must wear, amen? There are some basic garments that you must wear before you leave your house. And even to stay in your house. And that's what Paul is saying. There are these basic garments that you must wear every single day in your life. What garments? Affection, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. What does it mean to bear with one another? 
means enjoying the fellowship of one whom you really like and enjoy. Now, someone who sometimes gets on your nerves. Someone who irritates you. Bearing with one another. How about patience? Do you got to have patience with those whom you like? Forgiveness. Forgiving one another. There can be no life of unity in the church if these garments are not worn every single day, brothers and sisters. We have seen over and over again a repetition. I have seen other churches here. People stop wearing these garments. And suddenly, they forget to put on love. They forget to put forgiveness. And they come to you with a massive book of faults and problems and sins that you have never heard before. What is that? Forsook your garments. So often the unity of the church is not maintained and preserved because we refuse to give Christ given garments to us. So, here is the foundation for true biblical unity. What is the foundation of true biblical unity in the church? The work of the Trinity. The work of the triune God in the gospel of Christ. There can be no unity in the church if we are not agreed and we are not part of this beautiful work of the Trinity in bringing all things into unity in Christ Jesus. And that's why, brothers and sisters, you can go, you can go south, you can go to Argentina, Patagonia, you can go to Europe, you can go to Asia, and yet have communion with Christians in those places. Do you know why? Because of the work of the Trinity in their lives. That's the only reason. You can go to a church, underground, China. You might not understand most of what people are saying. And yet, your heart is deeply united with those people. Why? Because of the Trinity. So those are the grounds of true biblical unity. Next Lord Day, Lord Wheeling, you're going to be looking at the nature of unity. We saw the gravity how important it is, the foundation, the ground. And next Lord Day, Paul is going to tell us the nature of unity, what unity looks like in the church. So Lord, we thank You. We thank You for Your love and Your care. O triune God, we praise You. We give You all the glory. We ask You to help us. Help us to walk in unity. 
Help us to reflect the beauty of the gospel. Lord, help us, Holy Spirit, help us to preserve, to maintain the unity of your body in the chains of peace. Help us every day, Lord, to put on, to dress up garments of compassion. Help us to have compassion for one another, affection for one another. Help our hearts, our stomachs to have pain because of our brothers and sisters. Because of the great compassion, great affection that we have towards one another. Help this church to be daily dressed with these garments, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.